I think it's helpful and even healthy as a nation in this case to examine those moments with a finer tooth comb and really pull out all of the messy bits and, and talk about them and imagine them because more often than not, you know, if history does make us who we are, then a lot of the unsavory elements that we see and deal with and are reckoning with in Canadian society can also be traced back to those moments. I'm Nathan Maharaj. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is Kai Thomas, author of the new novel, In the Upper Country, which takes place in a fictional Canadian town called Dunmore, a place where people fleeing slavery in the southern United States build new lives. Kai Thomas, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thanks for having me. To start out our discussion about In the Upper Country, tell me, what is The Upper Country? (laughs) I came to that title because I was intrigued by, I guess, the layered meanings in in that term. It was a term that I encountered in some historical documents, and I think it's still around to some extent for uh, today. It's, it's, it references, especially in the era of the fur trade, the upriver, the country upriver, uh, since that was uh, probably the most important way to locate things in reference to each other, since the rivers were really important trade routes, obviously. So it, it, it refers to that. It also, I like the way that it hinted at the idea of, of Canada as this destination for the Underground Railroad, not only as being northerly from the U.S., but as having the moral superiority associated with being the promised land in that chapter of history. So, so yeah, the, the title kind of plays with, with all of those meanings um, as they relate to the, the different themes and historical moments in, in, in the novel. Can you tell me about the town of Dunmore? You know, who lives there? Um, some of these characters we meet at the start and, and how they come to be there? Yeah, absolutely. Dunmore was my way of paying homage, I guess, and creating uh, a town that didn't exist, but perhaps could have existed, kind of a composite of the many towns that emerged in some cases during this period of time after the fugitive slave law had been passed in the U.S. in 1850, between that time and abolition in, in the United States, which about 1865, so this is 15-year period where Canada was the destination of the Underground Railroad, and a number of, of these towns emerged, many of which did not survive the test of time, and there's many reasons for that, but Dunmore was... Uh, my attempt as as a writer to to imagine what one of these towns could have looked like, what it could have, uh, you know, the types of work that people would have been engaged in, the types of politics that people would have been having conversations about and engaged in, and and that's what it what it represents. Mm. 
You mentioned the political context, the the fugitive slave law um, that created such uh, a push for folks to flee and get well clear of the of the the arm of that law. Is that why you said it then in in uh, eighteen fifty nine, which is just sort of as the tensions are reaching a boiling point that would ultimately tip the the United States into civil war. Yeah, I think that moment of pre-Civil War in the United States was significant. I think it was kind of far enough into this era where Canada had become the destination, the, the most important destination of the Underground Railroad, that what I imagine, that the, the that what that would have meant for the culture and the societies of these towns would have been significant in that they would have been entrenched they would have staked their claim to a certain degree in and amongst the the society that they were situated in and um and yeah as, as you're alluding to this 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 the way in which that that particular moment that particular year precipitated these uh really dramatic events and so the i was interested in the way that all of the factors that contributed to this boiling point that you're talking about in the U.S. might have been felt in Canada. And at the same time, the book ventures through memory, through recorded history uh, earlier in time. And it seemed like a good anchor point to to go back and forth from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm interested in the newspaper um, that's run out of Dunmore. Uh, the character Arabella is uh, is its publisher, and she enlists uh, another character, Lincinda, as as a journalist uh, who writes for it. The paper's called the Colored Canadian. Was that based on a real publication or or a set of publications that you sort of turned up in your research? Yeah, absolutely. There are several black newspapers that were published in the era mostly in Southern Ontario, and one of which was founded by, by a woman named Marianne Shad Perry, who lived in Buxton, which is one of the few Underground Railroad era towns that survives to this day. They have a very vibrant Emancipation Day festival and community life in general. So Marianne Shad Carey was involved in starting a newspaper called The Provincial Freeman, I believe. So I just thought it was it was so interesting. And I, and I believe she is recognized as the earliest female uh, publisher of a, uh, a black female publisher of, of, a, of a newspaper. So Arabella's character hints at her life in some ways. And I was, I was, yeah, I was just interested in the the impetus to for for black folks at that time and in that place to to write i was interested in the things they would have been writing about and the discourse that newspapers such as that created and and i think for the purposes of the novel i don't spend a lot of time you know showing scenes of what the newspaper was both in terms of the actual publishing and the writing of it but it's it's 
it served kind of almost as a as a foil to mm. to you know go go deeper into what conversations were happening behind these articles and what uh, dynamics were uh, were prompting the the types of articles that were being written and and, mm. and stuff stuff like that. So um, that yeah, that's a bit about about that choice. Were you were you tempted to to blow it up and kind of almost do like a John Dos Passos kind of thing and and bring in the newspaper and start and really push the limits of you know what can be in the novel um uh you know give give us sections of the newspaper or was it always going to did you did you go in knowing I'm using this for background and this is sort of propulsive fuel this is not this I'm not going to invite this into center stage I think there was a moment where I wanted to uh you know do give sort of like uh facsimile is that the word i I want to imitate what the articles that i was finding in the records would have been talking about Hmm. i think i shied away from that initially because it's really hard to do so you know historical fiction is kind of interesting because or at least in the way that i i learned to to write it in this book in that you're 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 conjuring you're trying to conjure a, 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 an era and a way of speaking and all of these things you're trying to conjure a world that is past but inevitably you, it doesn't really work when you when you do it really well because you know you, you read through some of these newspaper articles or some primary source material from the mid 1800s and as close as as it is to modernity, the way that people formulate ideas is like so different, was so different. And the way that people speak was so different to the extent that I found if I were to try and imitate that, I don't know if it would be as readable. And, you know, I think that I was going for a form of realism, a form of historical realism, but I still wanted it to be useful to a degree for people to engage with the dialogue, with the uh, the writing in general, the prose in general. Mm-hmm. And so it's just that middle ground that you have to get to where you're, you're, you're summoning the world without fully imitating it. Arabella runs a newspaper. I think speaking to exactly what you were saying before, which, which is with a sensibility that I think doesn't quite register for us. Um, she's got an explicitly political uh, aim with the newspaper. There's writing that she she has in mind for persuading or reinforcing the views of of her intended audience to support the cause of emancipation. I mean, you couldn't have more skin in the game than a political agenda like that as as a publisher. What did you learn about sort of journalism in that time that someone like Lincinda might be doing, you know, with respect to how widespread literacy would be, how one would learn to read and write, and how that would affect who you conceive of as your audience? I think what you're hinting at there is is a key element that I noticed right away, and that probably most people would notice if you begin to read newspaper articles from from that period is yeah the journalistic the expectations of journalism were were quite different it was often very didactic very uh partisan very um 
Yeah, very, very political in that way where there, there wasn't necessarily, and I'm not an expert on it. It's just, you know, one of the things that I, that I noticed. And, and I think from what I have read and heard, it, it kind of goes across the board, whether you're looking at publications such as the New York Times back in the day or the uh, Quebec Gazette was one that I, I read a little bit of as well. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it has that quality to it, which I thought was interesting. And obviously, um, as you're pointing out, there's a very clear and even arguably moral impetus to do so, to write in a way that perhaps sounds a bit more like propaganda than what we would recognize as journalism. So that's a thing for sure. Many of the smaller publications from what I read were not actually successful in the long term. Imagine part of that was because of the struggle of of literacy paired with perhaps struggle of uh, funding and financing. Mm -hmm. The newspaper as I depict it in the book is is quite successful. That that was me kind of stretching a little bit in order to to create uh, a dynamic that I thought would be interesting and not too far off of what actually happened to disrupt the genre and the and what I was trying to do there. I think, yeah, the point around literacy is a uh, is an interesting one. How I tried to engage with that in in the novel was was at hinting that at the very least the endeavor of of producing written work in a regular way, such as in the newspaper, would be all, you know, paired with the endeavor of a community that is coming out of a context where it would have been not only illegal, but extremely dangerous to read and to practice reading. And, and thus to, for, for the newspaper and for literacy more, more generally to be the source of and the site of power in a community such as that. I've read, and I think you write in the afterword of the book, that there's a historical figure named John Daddy Hall that you learned about in your research. Um, you ultimately decided not to fictionalize Hall's life and and to sort of set him aside. Um, but can you can you tell me about him? What what was so interesting about John Daddy Hall? Yeah, he has a fascinating story. A lot of what I learned about John Daddy Hall, I have to shout out the historian Peter Myler, um, based in Toronto, actually, or, or near thereabouts. And he just had this fascinating life. And when I read about it, I initially came across a, a, a photo, a portrait of his image, which was interesting of, in and of itself, given the period and the fact that in the mid-1800s, this would have been, you know, this is the beginning of, of photography and the first time that black folks or marginalized people generally could represent themselves in that way, whereas previously portraiture would have been relegated to the elites. So it was, it was interesting already and as a powerful photograph, but the information on his life that kind of followed was just, just blew me away, you know, uh, in a brief summary, he was, he was a man of, African as well as indigenous descent. He 
fought in the War of 1812 for Tecumseh, who was the Shawnee uh, indigenous leader and kind of visionary, and was subsequently enslaved for many years in the American South, escaped, and eventually was one of the founding members of the Black community of Owen Sound, which was considered the northern terminus of the Underground Railroad at the era. And he lived to be like 115 years old, according to reports, which is a little bit dubious in that time frame, given the lack of birth records and, and whatnot. But fact is, he was extraordinarily old. And so just had this like, this this life that touched on all these chapters and points in history that you know i've seen represented to a certain extent and but large parts of i hadn't seen and i was inspired to to learn more about them and as you mentioned initially i had conceived of the book as following john daddy hall's story very closely and even naming him as a as a character, as I learned more about the genre and started reading other things and and writing, I veered away from that largely because I was just struck by the sacredness of, of a person's actual name and not did not feel that it was appropriate to presume to write scenes from a real person's life and felt like if I'm going to write fiction, let me just write fiction and allow for the possibilities that that entails. So instead, you know, I shout him out in the acknowledgments and, you know, I pay deep respect to, to him and many other people who really lived and whose lives inspired my research. And, and, and he was, he was definitely the, the, the first and the central figure to get me thinking about these things. Black and Indigenous relations of the period, uh, the character and the quality of these underground railroad communities, and uh, and things of that nature. The the character is is really interesting to me in in that, uh, as you say, you 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 pulled from from that uh, into your book that representation of the entwinement of Black and Indigenous. Uh, identity, culture, um, and you pull it into the book, though, I thought in a really interesting way, in a way that, that for me, kind of signaled that um, I wasn't going to be able to just carry in my 21st century, nice middle-class politics and map them on, because it's going to be more complicated than that. Because in in the book, the first indigenous person we meet, uh, we actually meet through dialogue first, and it's the quote unquote Indian that's accompanying a bounty hunter who is sort of the center of the action of the, of the novel. And uh, I took that as as a as a warning to um, I'm going to have to actually think through this, and I'm going to have to <laughs> actually evaluate the moral character of 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 everyone, and there will be no convenient coding of identity and morality here. I am I am going to have to listen hard to to everyone's uh story. Right. Am I making more work for myself than you intended or is that is that a complication that that you were really setting out for the reader? <laughs> I do the same thing, you know. I think writing about history there's there's different rules, there's different norms, different mores, all of these things as I think generally, you know, coming from an identity of of an oppressed group i felt an impulse to there's often an impulse to romanticize 
uh, in ways that I would like to imagine. I would like to have imagined that, you know, anybody who's ever been been oppressed automatically aligns themselves with somebody else, another group or another person who has been oppressed, and we can, you know, band together and, and all of these things. And I think there, there are plenty of examples of historical alliance between groups such as Black and Indigenous folks. There's also plenty of examples of historical antagonism, um, and there's many reasons for that. But yeah, I think it, it definitely was intentional. It was a, it was a push to uh, against romanticizing because I think fundamentally romanticizing is, is a form of stereotyping, and I think the the history is complex and layered and messy, and I definitely wanted to represent that in the storytelling while still shedding light on scenes and sites of of power and of and of alliance in some cases that i hope are rendered realistic by the the nuance part of that that nuance that i thought was really one of the strengths of the novel was that sort of problematizing of canada um i think we're taught in in you know as as good little canadian school kids we're taught that underground railroad was this thing that that uh we almost imagine it cartoonishly of like delivering people like once we snuck people across that border they were safe because canada didn't have slavery did you encounter in your in your research that sort of the myth making around canada as the safe haven yeah and i i think you know riffing on what how you kind of began this question i, I encountered that in my upbringing mm. and i think in large part you know the motivation for me to take this this tact in this in this book of looking at and looking and and unpacking uh, a historical moment like the underground railroad and similarly looking and unpacking a, a historical moment of the historical moment of the war of 1812. These were both things that I learned growing up in Canada as these defining moments of our national identity. You know, you have the banding together of uh, diverse racial and, and linguistic groups that, that was the, the war of 1812. And that gave us this sense of pluralism. And then you have the, the moral superiority and the racial tolerance of the Underground Railroad, and that also gave us these defining features. And I think, you know, it's 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 tricky because there's there there is a lot of truth to both of those ideas. And as you're alluding to, that doesn't mean that that's all there was to them. Hmm. And I think it's helpful and even healthy as a nation in this case to examine those moments with a finer tooth comb as we as we kind of brush through them and and really pull out all of the messy bits and 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 talk about them and imagine them because more often than not you know if history does make us who we are then a lot of the the unsavory elements that we see and deal with and are reckoning with in Canadian society 
can also be traced back to those moments and it's helpful to do so. So, yeah. yeah. One of, one of the more shocking moments where you do something like that, where you sort of pull something up for examination or, or, you know, complication was actually like the word or concept of slavery itself that the word is used to describe it's used in a, in a fable that a character tells another. I don't want to, I don't want to get into spoilers. I want to, don't want to start dropping details that, that give plot away, but there's a, like a, almost a fable of a prince and his, his, uh, quote unquote brother who, who by, by the definition of their relationship and society is, is he's, a, he's, he's understood to be a slave, but not a slave for picking cotton and running, you know, industry. Uh, it's a very different, very different understanding. Um, and that was, that was tough for me. That was a moment that felt like, I felt like I was reading Cormac McCarthy, to be honest, where I was like, okay, we're gonna have to dismantle like morality and all of my like easy, like quick connections and heuristics about what's good and bad and what things mean. And I'm really gonna have to like think down to first principles of Mm -hmm. what is actually going on here and what do these people mean to each other? Mm Mm-hmm. I really leaned on on the history books there's mm. and and I think that I think the complexity that you're you're hinting at it that that is an element where you know that was no invention on my part that is just uh I'm not that smart you know I I just <laughs> I, I I just read there's there's a there's a lot that was really helpful and I think part of what I tried to identify for this book is like Okay, I'm not a historian, I'm not a professional researcher, but mm. I can read and I can follow people's bibliographies and books like um, Brett Rushforth, who's a historian, has this book called Bonds of Alliance that talks about slavery in the French Atlantic world. And he, he goes into great detail, kind of breaking down the ways that indigenous peoples uh, in what is now Canada practiced slavery and enslavement and really just goes into the nuance of what were the similarities what were the differences what did it look like what was the material culture of it and comparison to the french in this case taya miles is a is a fantastic historian who wrote a book about detroit and the ways that slavery was was practiced in in detroit called uh, the dawn of detroit it's like fantastic scholarship that gets into all these nuances and these 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 moments in history that are yeah difficult to understand from our perspectives in part because of the <clears throat> the way we teach history of of slavery and 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 other things we we, we get entrenched in our own our, our modern understandings of things and it's historians of that caliber who can really take a closer look and pull out how people were thinking about this at the time, which is often radically different than how we think about it today. So, so yeah, that, those are some examples of, of how I, I dealt with writing those scenes or those kind of interludes in the book. I don't want to spoil anything, um, but I do want to talk about this really menacing opening scene at Simeon's farm that that's early in the novel um because it uh it reminded me of something out of quentin tarantino um and not even just django unchained just one of those scenes of like 
impending violence and and some character who's being really polite because they intend to murder everyone if they if they feel they have the reason to do it right and that that tension uh is something i love uh it's something i have to read like between my fingers it makes it it makes me nuts uh i find myself i'm putting myself in the situation i'm trying to figure out like how far is the character away from a doorway or a weapon mm-hmm. and what would i do and how are you going to communicate to another person to coordinate action for like i i go insane reading reading scenes like this <laughs> it's because the scene was so effective and i was so there and 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 involved and like concerned for for the safety of these characters and the like hidden motiv- motivations of of this um of this bounty hunter uh who had right. shown up literally on the doorstep was there a literary or cinematic archetype you were reaching for is this a type of scene you particularly savor or was or or is this like a really hard scene to write and you hated it and i'm I, and i've somehow enjoyed you know <laughs> this, this agonizing thing it's funny i didn't think of quentin tarantino i haven't thought of quentin tarantino and until you mentioned it and in, in terms of the association with the scene i think the thing the elements that you're pulling out are, are spot on i you know i'm familiar with with his work i have enjoyed some of his stuff for sure it's prop there's probably an influence there that i hadn't even fully considered uh when i was writing some of the when i had begun in some of the earlier drafts I read Blood Meridian, uh, which that is a book, man. I I don't even know. <laughs> he he has a a, a brutality and a, just a raw power to his 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 writing. It was actually one of my mentors, I believe, uh, during the pro- process of writing Wabgishik Rice, who put me onto that book, and I. Uh, I think that that book in particular, if I'm thinking back to what may have influenced that scene, some of the some of the characters, some of the the ways that he builds uh, tension around the prospect of violence, in particular, in the way that you're 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 mentioning here, I I definitely tried to pull a few tips and tricks from him in that respect. Well, it was delicious and painful, so well done. Good. <laughs> I, sh- I mean, I should also mention Marlon James. I, I read, I've I've read all of his stuff. Since, yeah, yeah. I've I've been a big fan for a while, and yeah. uh, I think one of the books I read along around this time would have been his first of his latest uh, trilogy, uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Hmm. He, I mean, in general, I I'm really intrigued by the way he deals with violence as as a theme and as just the way that he writes it, I think um, he was definitely an influence in that respect. One of the things that I've heard him say in his his in a talk is that uh, something along the lines of uh, violence without aftermath is just pornography, mm. something like that. Mm. And so that was a, an idea that I took to heart, as I said, about to write it in particular because I was very aware of the ways that Black suffering will always sell and is always appealing. And that doesn't mean that that should be the focus of of the work, even though, you know, Black suffering in this case is real. I think the suffering of any 
marginalized people of any oppressed people has the capacity to have that kind of pornographic element to it. And I'm using that word not in a sexual sense, but just in the sense of there being a, a sort of a perverse excitement around the prospect of mm-hmm. seeing this historical violence depicted and enacted. And I was very aware of that. And yeah, just wanted to make sure that that number one, the types, the ways in which I was encountering people in, in, in history books and whatever, who, you know, either were enslaved or uh, dispossessed in some way, talk about how they were also capable of violence hmm. and talk about the ways that they needed to, to activate that in order to radically change their, their conditions, the conditions of their lives. And I was, I was, I was committed to, to both, you know, to try not trying to balance both, both realities. And in particular, I think, you know, the, the, the ways I was interested in, in depicting that dynamic, the ways that oppressed people can, can actually claim violence as, as a, as an action for themselves, Mm. you know, in a way that was not over the top or romanticized or whatever, but just going back to, to, to the, to the history and and into these, these chapters of history that I was, that I was reading about and saying, well, you know, this and this really happened. Let me introduce, introduce that both as a, as a, in the scenes that I'm writing as well as in the subtext and in, and as a way to generate that narrative tension, because I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't seen that, done a whole lot this this is an interesting book because it's about the underground railroad but we don't spend any time uh along that path we don't spend time um with the business of of smuggling people to safety it's not a chase novel it's almost like the epilogue uh, to every chase, to to the the story we think we know of the flight from slavery. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, it totally relates to the to the last thing that we we're discussing because my sense in having done some reading in the genre was that to a certain extent that story, the story of flight, the story of violence that had, was experienced during enslavement, has been told. Mm. And I'm not against the telling of it, uh, but I'm interested, I was interested in, yeah, holding back from, from, from going down the, the familiar path of what did slavery look like, how horrible it was, and going into this, <clears throat> it's not completely new territory, plenty of people have, have done it and written about it, I just think you know, in the grand scheme of things, perhaps less less so than um, than the story of, of of flight and of the scenes of enslavement of themselves. So, I was interested in you know what was the aftermath, what is the aftermath, and what did it look like at this moment and at this place, mm-hmm. and in what ways does that draw parallels to uh, to the present moment and 
and yeah, so all of that was 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 definitely intentional, and I, for the most part, no, I didn't feel, I didn't feel tempted to to stray from that mm. that decision. Mm. What kind of a reader were you when you were growing up? I read a lot of fantasy. I read a lot of. I listened to a lot. I remember listening to cassette tapes very young of uh brian jakes oh yeah the the red wall series the castaways of the flying dutchman i loved his work i would listen to that a lot i listen i remember being yeah very much like drawn to the kind of action and adventure side of things i remember loving this i don't even know how i came across this one but there was a series by uh, Louis Cha is the English translation. He has this series called The Deer in the Cauldron. It's like an adventure kung fu novel series following this young kind of street urchin type named Trinket. I remember loving that. <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed Lord of the Rings and, and all of the rest too, but those are some of the more niche ones that I, I remember yeah. liking. So yeah, very drawn to that to the fantastical as a, as a, as a child. How did you start writing? Was it, was it fanfic? Did you extend uh, the stories of these characters that you picked up through, through fantastical reading or? No, I remember one of the first things I wrote creatively that I felt really excited by was uh, I had a history assignment at some point in high school to write about an ancestor or uh, I don't know, remember what exactly the constraint was, but it was like either a, a great grandparent or something like that, some form of ancestor that you had to, that you were instructed to kind of inhabit and and write about. And I, I just remember thinking that was so cool to do and so much fun to imagine and to read about, in part because it was a great opportunity to talk with my family, my grandparents who were then alive mm. about uh, different people and make a decision who I wanted to write about and then just kind of go into this uh, deep dive of a, of a first person narration imagining to be my great grandfather mm. something like that so that that's one thing that I I really remember as like this was a moment that I felt that this was exciting to do and enlightening to do and I felt really drawn to to that so I think that's that was probably my birth as a historical fiction the uh, writer do you plan to undertake more historical fiction projects in the future or was this really a project born out of you know the inspiration of of your of the of the research that uncovered characters you know like uh like john daddy hall the next book is definitely in a similar genre mm -hmm. and i'm at the very beginning stages of it so so it's hard to say all the ways in which it will evolve but my my sense is, you know, I want to I want to continue along this vein for for at least one more book, and then and after that, who knows? I, I'm open to to anything. But uh, I think the the amount of reading and the kind of content that I was uh, encountering and the ideas and everything, and it's not a super long, this book itself is not a super long book, mm. and so I feel drawn to. To, to follow on this genre for, for at least one more and then, and then to broaden out. 
Kai Thomas, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. I really enjoyed your questions and this conversation. I have been speaking with Kai Thomas, author of the brilliant new novel, In the Upper Country. Find it and all the books we talked about at kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link in the show notes. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Kobo in Conversation is produced, edited, and occasionally hosted by me, Nathan Maharaj. Thank you for listening.